0: Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. I'm your host for today, and we're pleased to have you listening in or watching in if you're on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, please subscribe. That helps our numbers up. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast channel, give us some feedback and let us know how we're doing. Today, we're going to talk about increased disclosure requirements around your security program, and in particular, Supply Chain Risk. Now, you don't want to be a deer in the headlights if you're asked by your board or asked by your executives about something with respect to supply chain. So this episode will get you ready to address those issues with both your management team and your board. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Are you ready to answer the question, are we protected? Introducing Prelude Detect. Prelude Detect is a continuous testing service endorsed by MITRE to provide organizations assurance that they're protected against the latest threats, that they've correctly prioritized their critical vulnerabilities, and their defensive controls work exactly as expected. Get started for free or request a demo at www.preludesecurity.com. Again, that's preludesecurity.com. Okay, well back to the show for what you're here for. I'd like to introduce two special guests from the Chertoff group. The first is Adam Isles. Adam is a principal and the head of cybersecurity practice there, with twenty six years in security. All right, so yeah, we're kind of peers in that area. More than a decade working with large complex companies on their cybersecurity programs, and has had important roles at the Department of Justice, such as a counsel, the Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division, and on the National Security Council. Well, served with them, actually, was on the council, I don't think. And the Department of Homeland Security was the deputy chief of staff, also worked at Raytheon. So very impressive credentials, and Adam, privileged to have you on the show. It's great to be here. And David, you're the managing director of cybersecurity at Chertoff Group, where you've helped Fortune 500 organizations assess, prioritize, communicate cyber risks. And prior to your joining Chertoff Group, you spent a decade at Booz Allen designing and conducting cybersecurity war games and exercises that the DOD, civilian agencies, and the private sector utilized. David, welcome. Hey, Jamar. And full disclosure for everybody, I have done work with the Chertoff Group before, but that doesn't affect our call. But anyway, let me start with Adam here. There's a new SEC rule. It just hit the street. Tell us about what's new.
1: Yeah, so the SEC adopted a final rule on uh, cybersecurity disclosure for uh, public companies. Uh, And it really has two components. The first component uh, is around incident reporting. And the second component is really around periodic reporting of cybersecurity uh, risks and risk management. Uh, for the first component, what the what the rule that was adopted uh, at the end of July says is basically you have four days from the determination that a cybersecurity incident is quote-unquote material to publicly disclose it to NN8K. Now, the rule also says you can't take a unnecessary delay in making a determination as to whether it was material or not. And it also says that if new material information becomes available, you have to do a, an 8K update within four days of, of making that determination. So so we've got some new requirements around timing. What I would say here is there is an existing requirement to report material incidents that exists today. And the SEC, going back to 2018, clarified that in interpretive guidance. What's new in this rule is, is the timing aspect of it there is a delay provision it's a limited one that allows the US attorney general to weigh in and basically say to the extent that disclosure would create a, a quote unquote substantial national security and public safety risk this needs to be told for 30 days and then you can have you know 30 day extensions beyond that at least one so so that's the if you will the kind of the incident related piece of this the final rule is actually an update to the rule that was released in its proposed form more than a year ago, in March of 2022. And and one of the notable changes in in moving from the proposed rule to the final rule is the fact that there was a delay provision that was introduced. And so what this uh, delay provision does is it basically says the attorney general can weigh in uh, and say that a disclosure uh, would pose a substantial uh, national security or public safety risk. uh, And uh, he can basically toll disclosure for 30 days uh, and then another 30 days, and then there's some extraordinary measures if it needs to go beyond that that the commission needs to take. So there is a uh, limited delay provision. It's probably more relevant for situations where DOJ is knocking on someone's door as opposed to someone's knocking on you know the FBI or DOJ's door if there is that provision in place. I, I would also say that you know one of the questions that comes up is, okay, well, like, what does materiality mean? And that's a that's a there's a qualitative answer to that. And and what the what the commission declined to do in the final rule is to prevent any kind of quantitative guidance around what quote unquote material means.
2: I, I just say, you know, we're we'll get to this a little later in the conversation, but when we work with organizations on building exercises, there's a significant amount of discussion on what material means. And we've encountered some organizations that within their own incident response documentation have defined you know, cybersecurity incidents as material. And whether or not that's interoperable with what the SEC defines as material is, is yet unknown. And so I think a lot of organizations are going to be trying to move away from putting ma- material in their documentation unless there is a little bit more clarity on what a material incident means. My
0: attorney friends say, well, it depends. And I suppose it depends is probably going to be the overriding rule. But if I understand that right, what you're indicating is the filing of an 8K. Now, for those who are not familiar with an 8K, maybe explain briefly what that is for public companies. Yeah, so, so first of all, disclaimer here, I'm not here to provide legal advice. Yes, yes. We, <laughs>
1: are, we are happy to refer folks to law firms that are well qualified to do that. But an 8K is basically a, a significant event report that uh, companies would would issue to, to shareholders. And so that's what we're what we're getting at here. I, I would say that the what we do want to see, and whether it's an insurance response or a crisis management plan, is the flagging of you need to think about materiality because you now have this 48 clock uh, that you have to deal with as well, as well as this kind of qualitative, no unreasonable delay provision. Um, but I, what we're trying to get at is you don't want to equate a cybersecurity crisis with a material event, right? In other words, we can have a non-material cybersecurity crisis.
0: Now, typically, who would get to determine that in an organization? Would a CISO say, hey, i call this material. Does that go to the chief legal officer? Where is that often determined?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I think this is where we move from, you know, cybersecurity incident to crisis, right? Because crises can be all hazards, right? And we might have uh, a material event where a manufacturing plant is taken out by a tornado or whether there's some, you know, major credit or liquidity event that occurs, and so really what we're trying to think about when we think about materiality is impact, whether that's financial, operational, reputational, uh, or from kind of other litigation safety concerns. But at the end of the day, it's a corporate governance question. And so what we're looking to do is to make sure we're moving actually beyond the CISO to the corporate governance team to say, is this is this material And not from an impact point of view?
0: Now, one of the things I thought was interesting in that ruling or is the information that came out was they struck a requirement that boards had to indicate whether or not there is cybersecurity expertise on the board. And there's some organizations that, hey, well, that's great. And other people said, are you kidding me? What's going to happen for the top cover for the CISOs? Any insight in terms of whether it's going to make a difference and not make a difference for security leaders in terms of being able to potentially seek an understanding audience when they talk to the board? Or do you think companies are going to do it anyway, whether or not they're required to?
1: Well, the commission was not entirely silent on boards and the final rule that it adopted. It did say you had to disclose which board committees were, you know, were responsible for overseeing cybersecurity risk and what processes were in place to to inform the board. So I think, and and, and by the way, there's a kind of a broader set of provisions that are also now required to be re- reported in what's referred to as periodic reporting, which is basically an annual report, mm-hmm. um, and so board involvement is one, a management involvement is another. And then there are a series of processes to assess, identify, and, and manage cybersecurity risk that the commission's asking to be disclosed as well. And and that list is, a, you call it streamlined, call it up-leveled, a version of what was in the proposed rule that I mentioned earlier. But they're still asking companies to disclose, you know, if you're using outside, you know, cybersecurity consultants, auditors, you know, how you're managing third party risks. And the commission thought about it and said, we think it's relevant to an investor to understand the extent to which a company is basically insourcing all cybersecurity or relying on, on, you know, outside service providers. So those requirements are in there in terms of describing the, if you will, the business as usual program as
2: well. I'd also say that I think we have observed a really uneven at level of expertise or fluency on the board with regards to cybersecurity. When we work with technology organizations who have a kind of higher level of just sophistication in that area, you tend to find more kind of cybersecurity knowledge and curiosity. But with a lot of organizations, I think with, with Fortune 500 co- companies, they're certainly catching up. I think there's still a lot of work to be done among even, even some of the largest companies that have a level of resident expertise, ability to not only understand, but also challenge management on key cybersecurity issues so that there is some level of, you know, kind of accountability, you know,
0: at both the board and management level. Yeah, I think uh, cybersecurity is like chemistry. A little bit of knowledge is dangerous. You can blow yourself up. If you have no knowledge, you don't mess with things. And if you have profound knowledge, you know what you're doing. So Adam, when will this kick in and why should we care about it? Does it only pertain to publicly traded companies or for non-public companies? Can they take a lesson out of this as well? Yeah, so it kicks in
1: in December. And so for periodic reporting, right, it would would start to take effect for fiscal years that end after December 15th, 2023. And the four-day rule for incident reporting kicks in slightly later, December 18th is when it kicks in. And in terms of like, why should we care? So the, the question is like, what happens if we don't take this seriously? And what we're seeing is the SEC taking an increasingly ambitious enforcement approach towards the uh, compliance with these rules. So it's, it's public now that SolarWinds disclosed that its CISO and CFO at the end of June had received something that's known as a Wells notice, uh, which is basically a, a target letter that says the SEC staff is recommending a, a civil enforcement action against you for a violation of federal securities laws. And so we're starting to think not just about okay, there are these new requirements. we've got to notify within four days. we've got to make certain disclosures. but like what's going to happen after an incident when the SEC starts to look into, you know the, the timing and the depth of disclosure and how would she disclosed to investors compared to what you might have just been discussing, either internally or with key customers or investors privately or, or partners. And so I think what, what was getting a lot of discussion right now is, you know, how do we stay on the, the right side of an, an inquiry post-incident?
0: Yeah, and that's a little bit frightening if you think as a CISO getting a, a Wells notice. I mean, we've seen in the last year what happens when somebody uh, decides to pay off ransomware and call it a consulting contract who ended up with a criminal charges, which... I think the judge was a bit lenient. He basically said, "Okay, fine," you're, you're, but going forward, we're going to throw the book at you. Uh, does that really change the risk environment for people who accept a position as a chief information security officer? Will a corporate E&O or directors' uh, insurance cover that, or is somebody kind of on their own at that point?
1: Well, I, you certainly want to look at your insurance policy, but but the, I think I would say the risk has increased because. Right. With the disclosure requirement, it's, it's almost like the second mistake is, is what can get you, right? Which is, did you disclose what the SEC, rightly or wrongly, would have expected that you should have disclosed? Right. So we've got this whole question, not just around how well are we like managing the incident? Is it contained? And when's our eradication event, And when are we going to be back up and running? But how does what we're saying publicly compare to you know what, what has actually happened?
0: Interesting. Now, one of the biggest engines of our economy is the software industry. If we take a look at the S&P 500, we'll find out that the top six software companies really make up about 25% of that value in terms of how it's stacked. What do you think the implications are to the software industry of this new rule? Well,
1: maybe I'll start and David you know, chime in here. I think you kind of have to break it down into, are we talking about software providers or software purchasers? And, and so for purchasers, which is basically everyone, there is a requirement in the rule that was adopted on the proactive side of things to describe processes in place to manage third-party vendor risk. And so are we going to start to think about providers as falling within you know, that, that scope? The other thing that the, the rule said, the final rule said is there's no exemption for reporting if you're victimized as a result of a, a third, an incident at a third party. So notwithstanding the fact that you might have an, you know, a provider that itself is breached of your impact somehow financially, operationally, regulatory perspective, the fact that it's a third party that's the source of the original breach doesn't exempt you from, from reporting. So that's the, if you will, the purchaser side. The provider side has all of the requirements that we've talked about, but, but I think the nuance is really around, okay, if, if, if we're ourselves are victimized... And someone accesses our source code, is that a material event? You know, and that's that's going to take some, you know, t- the, David talked about the challenges around timing. You know, answering that question is probably not a, you know, it's, it's not something that certainly can happen immediately after discovery, absent some, you know, kind of cataclysmic event. And then the question is going to be, is it material?
2: You covered most of the Wells notice. I will say it's unprecedented for a CISO to receive a Wells notice. So to, to Adam's point, I think there is an elevated level of kind of risk exposure and perception with those roles. And you get the one-two punch with you have potential, you know, a potential determination around standard of care that wasn't met. And then you have, you know, the, the overarching disclosure requirement. I think some organizations are also struggling with the ticking clock on disclosure, because as a practitioner, you're often trying to seek to get your arms around the incident, contain, potentially eradicate, not tip off the adversary, establish some level of mitigation around the incident before it hits the press. And there's going to be that tension there between trying to keep your head down and get the incident
0: under control and address the new SEC disclosure requirement. Well, before we get going, let's take a quick moment for a second sponsor message. Leadership, policy, and governance are important to managing technology risk and security. Training and workshops from C-Prime can help you make sure you get these right. C-Prime is a technology coaching firm that teaches classes to teams, leaders, and executives on how to design policy, analytics, and strategy related to security and risk. Visit cprime.com slant train to schedule an IT governance workshop to align expectations, capture priorities, and improve effective governance across your entire technology portfolio. Use the code CPRIMEPOD to get 15% off your training course purchase. Now, let's take a step back and talk about software supply chain risk. And David, I think this is going to be your area of expertise here. Yeah, thank you,
2: G-Mark. You know, software supply chain risk, the weaponization of the technology supply chain is nothing new. Even in 2014, the Hartley incident associated with the OpenSSL vulnerability left millions of people vulnerable and really eroded the trust model around TLS and OpenSSL encryption, the the protocols that are intended to really secure the the transit of information. Just to fast forward, though, to 2020, the, the SolarWinds sunburst compromise, which I think as most of your listeners will know, was a highly sophisticated attack prosecuted by a Russian state actor as a compromise and exploitation of the build process for SolarWinds, a major technology provider, which created substantial cascading impacts for both the U.S. government and commercial entities. We alluded to this already, but, you know, it's an unprecedented kind of Wells notice from the SEC to a, a CISO. so obviously more to come there still a little unclear on kind of where that will play out but but we think you know solar winds in particular was kind of an inflection point in the software supply chain exposure as far as you know a level of public consciousness and a U.S government reaction I mean since then, We've observed the Log4j vulnerability and significant compromise. More recently as well, the, you know, the, the MoveIt where the Clock ransomware group was able to exploit and achieve exposure to millions of people's personal data by exploiting a security
0: vulnerability in a file transfer tool from Progress Software. A question about that. So move it, I can understand because someone might say I signed up for that, but most people didn't sign up for OpenSSL or Log4j. And it turned out that these are tools that were embedded in other software libraries, which were embedded in other products, which might have been embedded, which brings the whole list like almost like a nutrition label that if I look at this thing and I say, what's in here? It kind of begs the question, how do we know what's in there? Yeah, it's a a great question, G. Mark. I mean, this gets to
2: I think one of the key drivers for the, you know, software supply chain security challenges, which is, you know, the level, the, the opacity of exactly being the ingredients list that you, that you speak about. the, the recent, uh, I think last year's uh, Synopsys OSR open source security report um, stated that 78% of most code bases they tested were comprised of open source software. And so organizations don't necessarily know what they're getting uh, from a security perspective when they're using libraries and components and dependence, creating dependencies within their code base, which is a blend of custom code and open source code. So so one of the ways to achieve a higher level of visibility with your um, software supply chain is through the Software Bill of Materials or, or SBOM. And that is a kind of ingredients list of the, uh, co- the open source libraries and components within your overall, you know, uh, code. I would not say that's a panacea. Uh, most organizations recognize that even if you have some level of visibility into your open source libraries, the question is how do you then contextualize that? index that and then potentially action it it's not as easy as just switching out one library for another oftentimes given the level of complexity the code density and um, and the dependencies it may have with other parts you know of your code base the the solar wind breach for example given it's we won't get into the the, the overall anatomy of of that you know attack chain, but an S-Bomb would not have necessarily, you know, mitigated that breach. But overall, the S I think we can, you know, agree as a collectively as a community is a significant step forward in achieving a higher level of visibility on, on code composition and the ability to at least
0: mitigate the the risks associated with certain libraries. And that makes sense. Although it doesn't help you if Bobby the intern is working for the summer and he writes some code that works its way into production and <laughs> it's got all kinds of bugs in it. That won't show up, but it does help with those external libraries. And that is important because those are common elements. It could be across hundreds or even thousands of products. And knowing, for example, that this particular batch of software, so to speak, has gone bad, we can run that SBOM chain and realize, okay, this is all the downstream effects. But is this anything new with regard to all of these supply chain risks? I don't think we were talking a lot about it a couple of years ago, but now it is. What's, What's changed?
2: Yeah, I think there's a number of drivers associated with both the heightened uh, level of supply chain risk and the increasing level of kind of uh, vigilance associated with U.S. government actions to kind of address that supply chain risk. One of those is, is code com- complexity. As we talked about, uh, you have a larger number of code libraries being incorporated into code bases. And just the, the level of density around code, the numbers of lines of code in the many millions is a significant order of magnitude higher than what we've seen, you know, several years ago or, or a decade ago. And that's, that's easy to understand when you think about the, the expectations around the end user, whether that's in the U.S. government or for the common user the more features, the more opportunities to kind of advance the sophistication of the the code and the user experience, the more lines of code you'll you'll likely see. I, I think in addition to that, what we found is an increasing level of outsourcing and offshoring of development. Now, I think that trend is beginning to retrench given an acknowledgement around some countries of concern but in some of those countries of concern happen to have a very rich talent pool of coders, developers, and software engineers. What we find is now organizations don't necessarily have an ability to audit or trace the origin or provenance of that code. And so they're now realizing they may have a significant amount of problematic or high risk exposure within their
0: code base that they cannot necessarily just flip a switch. Got it. So do software providers face any new disclosure obligations? Sorry to kind of push you on that. I want to make sure we get through all the topics that we wanted to cover today. Kind of touched on a higher level of heightened
2: expectations with the US government. Following the solar winds breach not long after in May 2021, Executive Order 14028 was released by the Biden administration. I wouldn't say that it was solely focused on software supply chain security, but it was a significant a center of gravity for the the order. And it covered uh, topics like software bill of materials, overall software security, hygiene and expectations, what the definition of critical software was. And I think most importantly, what is persisting to today is the introduction of a a kind of authoritative framework around software security. It's nothing new. There were frameworks like the the BSIM, or the Business Software Alliance Framework. But this was intended to normalize all those. And it ultimately was called the Secure Software Development Framework. That framework has now iterated into a common attestation form, which has been promulgated by the Office of Management and Budget and is now being facilitated by DHS, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So. Just to take a a step back, this similar to the SEC notification doesn't necessarily apply to all companies, only public companies. This Secure Software Development Framework and its derivative, the common attestation form, will only apply to organizations selling software into the U.S. government. It is a a subset of the Secure Software Development Framework, or SSDF, practices, but organizations... over the next several months will need to begin, if they haven't already, preparing to begin preparing to submit the common form to CISA so that they can continue to respond to government procurements and sell existing products into
0: the U.S. government. Now, you mentioned U.S. government, and one thing I want to touch on briefly, because I know that uh, your organization does some work on this is CMMC and the Cybersecurity Maturity model. And are we seeing traction with that? Is that actually going to get out of the gate? And do you think for those who have invested in saying, I'm going to become a registered practitioner and I'm going to count on CMMC actually becoming live? And for those aren't familiar with it, it applies to Department of Defense to basically say that providers are going to have to meet certain levels one, two, or three of maturity. But briefly, what are you seeing with the future on that? Anything in your crystal ball?
2: Yeah, I'll start. Maybe Adam can improve on what I say. I would first say that I would decouple the topic of software supply chain security from the CMMC. I think there's a somewhat common misnomer that CMMC is oriented around software security. It's really a broader set of cybersecurity hygiene best practices. And as I think those that have been tracking the CMMC kind of progress, the the government kind of reset the program you know, a a little under a year ago to kind of reduce some of the kind of administrative burden and overhead and the expectations. We are seeing, it's not going anywhere, and we are seeing increased marketplace around CMMC providers, three PAOs and organizations that are seeking to align to CMMC and attest to it. But obviously the progress is, I think at this point, I would characterize it as slow but steady
1: is to add there, the intent of CMMC really is focused on confidentiality right in the protection of controlled defense information and so s- source code isn't necessarily controlled defense information I mean you'll see some overlap between CMMC and, C- and SDF on things like you know points around zero trust architecture but they're two different com- compliance regimes and I think you're particularly once the, the CMMC self-attestation form is finalized companies are going to have to kind of prepare for both
0: Well, that's good. And thank you for that differentiation because I know some people get a little bit confused of it and appreciate you setting that straight. Now, back over to being able to do your supply chain and everything else in the company. What happens if we get things wrong? Are there any cases that have taken place that have to do with procurement and how could that go sideways? Yes. In 2021, the Department uh, of Justice, a mild agency,
1: announced the initiation has been called the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative, which is basically taking uh, the false claims that act and applying it to vendors that, you know, g- generally I think this is going to be post incident and have been determined to have kind of fallen short on, on cybersecurity expectations. So for example, in March of this year, the civil division, you know, settled an action that it had brought against a web developer in Florida. They've been developing a website for an insurance program targeted at insurance for children in Florida. There was an incident, there were uh, 500,000 plus of records, you know, that were uh, supposedly hacked. The website was supposed to have been HIPAA compliant. That's the representation that was made. turns out that the practices that were in place fell short of, you know, what would have been required for HIPAA. And so they, they, they settled. There were about $300,000 of damages that were part of the agreement with the department. Is that a large number, small number? Probably depends on the size of the company, you know, you are. But the reputational impact is significant.
0: Yeah, and I read that report there is some of the systems they hadn't patched since 2013. <laughs> yeah, I think the the other kind of cascading impact or, or second-order
2: impact that you don't necessarily read much about, and certainly you did in kind of the Kaspersky case and the binding operational directive insisted on U.S. government agencies ripping out any kind of Kaspersky buyer software. But I think organizations are alluded to this before grappling with their software products which may have some heritage provenance in countries of concern and so the US government DoD and even some c- civilian agencies are recognizing those risks and and that's creating some headwinds for organizations to address that and that that's not an easy there's no easy solution there when you have a level of kind of embedded, code and not necessarily the traceability that an S-bomb or some other level of code audit could give you. Organizations trying to remediate, trying to do the right thing and sustain their relationships with US government customers could be a, you know, a significant impact to their kind of overall business model. And could also, if they're selling into critical infrastructure, could have a reputational
0: impact that could cascade into other lines of their business. Got it. So So let's kind of break what kind of what we advertised to our listeners at the beginning. What are the top five questions that you might expect from your board relative to this sort of issue that we're
1: talking about? Well, I think the first question given, you know, what, what happened with the SEC is what do we need to get ready for the new SEC disclosure requirements? Mm -hmm. And we certainly need to be looking like we were talking about earlier at our incident response and, and crisis management plans and making sure we've got those okay. There's a timing requirement materiality, and there's also a what are we saying publicly versus what are we saying privately issue that we need to address as well.
2: Yeah, I'd also say in trying to position for those requirements, it's have you exercised, have you built muscle memory around kind of incident response and crisis management? Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth, as the venerable Mike Tyson once said. But when we conduct incident uh, response exercises, we're constantly surprised that some of those conversations had not occurred before. And building a credible, coherent scenario that drives action and tough decision making across the senior leadership is going to not only create a a little more kind of comfort and fluency in crisis situations, but allow you to prioritize remediation
0: actions post-exercise that will prepare you for a potential real event. And that's right. Your team does do those tabletop exercises at some of the highest levels in organizations. I heard great great things about it. How about also, like, what does move it mean for us? I know that Johns Hopkins University was a target of federal class action lawsuits just because they were a user of it. They weren't even the provider of it. What, what does that mean? If the board asks us, you know, everything that we're buying, are we at risk from being sued for using it? Okay. I think you've got to come back to, are we talking about
1: it from the lens of the purchaser or the provider? Okay. Of software, so for purchasers, we're thinking about vendor due diligence, particularly coming back to the SEC. Some of the requirements now to disclose high level process we have in place to to deal with that. I think it also though requires a look at inherent risk and taking taking a step back and saying, you know, based on what David was talking about earlier, you know, software is getting more and more and more complex. And so before we talk about how well we're securing it. Do we have opportunities actually to reduce the complexity? We've We've gone from five SaaS applications to 130 in, in the last five years. Do we really need all the 130 or we, can we standardize on a smaller number that we can spend more time focusing on how well-secured they are?
2: From a provider perspective, it's demonstrating a level of kind of care and diligence in your overall software development life cycle. And so this was a zero day, so this is a of a needle in a haystack, not necessarily easy to detect, but that blend of kind of threat modeling, testing and scanning both static, which may not have uncovered the vulnerability, but dynamic and behavioral testing. How is the product interacting in runtime? How is it interacting with other adjacent applications within the environment? And then the appropriate kind of disclosure process and crisis management process. You can imagine the organization was scrambling given the breadth and magnitude of this breach so again exercising and understanding that having those conversations building that stakeholder map so that you can move out on kind of response remediation and recovery in a more disciplined
0: way when an actual event occurs now here's another board question for you I mean all a lot of people hearing about it lately is AI 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 so if the board asks you how is AI going to impact our business and cyber in particular how would you answer that well, I'd start by saying, look, let's 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 kind of disambiguate
1: opportunities to leverage AI as a benefit from AI risks. And since we're a, a security advisor, I'll start with the risks. And you know, we've talked to a number of clients about this, and you, you just can't go by in in a day without some news item, some new AI related you know development being talked about. And so, as you take a step back from the fire hose of AI related news. What emerges is that there are really three categories of AI risk that, that we've observed. Uh, category one would be the use of AI technologies as an instrumentality of a bad act by a cyber criminal, an adversarial state actor, a disgruntled group uh, that is essentially weaponizing AI to achieve an objective. And so examples of that would be things like. Very advanced forms of social engineering, morphic malware, or the use of AI, AI to you know kind of seed disinformation into the public discourse. But so we're thinking about basically AI as being in kind of a weapon and a, a larger bad act. Category two is the targeting of AI systems themselves. So AI is now the target as opposed to the weapon. And here, what we're worried about are things like the poisoning of the data sets that end up serving as the training data for AI systems and large language models or prompt injection attacks. Category three is what we would refer to as unintended consequences. And you can think of these both as inputs and outputs and into AI technology. So from a kind of unintended consequence perspective on the input side, we're worried about people kind of unintentionally taking proprietary information, source code. Confidential customer information, proprietary information, and loading it into you know Bard or ChatGPT or another third-party tool, and all of a sudden it's it's not proprietary anymore. So we worry about those sorts of things from an input perspective and from an output perspective. You know we worry about bias, which has been a concern for a long time. We worry about hallucinations, and we worry about you know if you give particularly a, a generative AI technology you know a task. How is it executing the subtasks that go into the fulfillment of that task?
0: I understand you'll be doing a little bit of thought leadership on AI in the very near future. We have a white paper out on the topic, and what we try to do, I mean, what, what
1: you, what kind of the takeaway is right? You need an enterprise approach on this, and for the different categories, you have different teams that are really going to be kind of front and center in in, uh, in, in helping a company reasonably uh, address those risks.
0: Got it. Let me ask one last question, if you will, from the board. The SEC rule talks about processes to measure and manage cyber risk. So, what does best practice look like, well, in practice?
1: Yeah, this is where we talk about transparency, accuracy, and precision, right? So, what, you know, highly performing cybersecurity programs do is they operate with a high degree of transparency, accuracy, and precision. And so, what does that mean? From a transparency perspective, we're looking for the use of authoritative framework or frameworks, right? This isn't like, you know, Adam and David, cyber ninja, you know, black box that no one can understand what went into it, right? There's auditability, there's traceability, there's repeatability and sourcing to an authoritative framework. We've talked about a couple in, in, in this discussion. The challenge with some of those frameworks is they can operate at a certain level of abstraction. you know, remote access is managed. Okay. Like how? And, and so we're looking also for accuracy in how we map threat to mitigation, detection, resiliency measure, and then validation that like, yeah, what we have in place is actually defending against that. And this is where we think that, you know, the, the MITRE ATT&CK framework is hugely helpful in creating traceability between business profile and threat actors, threat actors and the tactics, techniques, and procedures they use, traceability from uh, basically the threat techniques to mitigations, detection data sources. So that you can achieve a level of, of accuracy, both in terms of defenses and validation of defenses. The third category is around precision, right? Which is, you know, again, given the conversation we, we kind of had earlier, given the complexity of the technology environment that we're in, the attack surface has just grown so much larger. So when we talk about defenses, it's like where and um, how are we thinking about differentiating how we're, you know, defending a, a browser versus a laptop versus a server versus, you know, some cloud technology versus a network device, right? different defenses of line. We're trying to be precise
0: about, you know, what's in place. I've got a sense that we're just scratching the surface of the knowledge that you gentlemen have, and we're already kind of at the end of the show. So if somebody wanted to follow up a little bit more and and learn from you or contact you, how would they do so? Uh, You can reach out to uh, info at com. Appreciate you taking the time. Any last thoughts before we wrap up?
1: Well, I think, look, this has this been a conversation in significant part around disclosure, which is around communicating you know, externally. I think that there's also an opportunity for folks to have a voice here, right? What does that voice look like? It looks like as we look at more and more of these requirements out, are we holding the government accountable to harmonizing the requirements, right? As I think whatever the burden of this new final rule is, the SEC did listen to comments that came in on the proposed rule and the requirements were a number of them were rolled back and G Mark, you talk about them. So it's whether through information sharing and analysis organizations, we do work in the retail sector or other sectoral organizations have a voice and have a collective voice working with fellow CISOs and security organizations amongst peer companies.
0: Well, this has been great. I've learned a lot and hopefully all of our listeners have as well. So Adam and David, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest today on the CISO Tradecraft show. And for those who are listening in on the show, Please subscribe if you haven't done so. It'll go ahead and help us reach other people and make sure you find out the latest. And don't forget to check us out on LinkedIn. We have a regular stream of high signal to noise and information that will help keep you advised. So until next time, thank you for listening and stay safe out there.